I feel like before we bring folks up, I already feel like we're in a, this may be a con- to be continued kind of thing. Um, it seems like there's a lot to talk about in this space and it's pretty fluid. There's more than just, um, just one topic to talk about. Um, I want you guys to put your seatbelts on because if you have never sat in a conversation or been a part of a conversation with Xavier, you are going to prepare yourself. The other folks on the panel, I'm not going to introduce because, and I'm also not even going to introduce Xavier because if you've, if you haven't been to a city club event before, you don't know this, but I don't read bios because I feel like we all learn to read them in fourth and fifth grade and you can go to the website and you can read them yourself. Um, so um, I could say a whole lot about X. I could talk about um, his diversity, no pun intended, about how many different things that he can can get off into. He is literally one of my um, favorite people to sit and talk about things with. And while I may be more senior than him, I learn from him every time we have a conversation. So um, without further ado, I think I've introduced everybody that I needed to talk about today. I'm going to bring up Xavier Ramey. They all have water, but you don't. Okay. Well, yeah. sitting down. Okay. And there's another mic there. Thank you. Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. How are you doing? Great. Okay. And shout out to Harris School of Public Policy. <laughs> um, so my name is Xavier Ramey. I'm from the best side of Chicago, the west side of Chicago. Uh, <laughs> I'm always going to represent. I'm always going to represent. Every time. Every time. Dion, you know you got products going out to the west side, too. We're going to have you up on stage very shortly. Um, I'm very excited to be here with you all today. My name is Xavier Ramey. I'm the founder and chief executive officer of a social impact consulting firm called Justice Informed. Uh, we're based here in Chicago, but we work across the country, driving innovative solutions for organizational design and relational repair. My firm belief is that we, when we look at the questions of injustice and inequity, we are looking at an issue of design. Uh, in many ways, people think that we're talking about the values that some people have. And of course, values uh, can drive the question of whether we have equity in a city or whether we have justice in our criminal justice system or whether we have uh, uh, equality uh, in our communities. But the reality is, is that we also design for injustice. The way that we build our companies, the way that we design our cities, the way the zoning departments and planning departments work together and appraisers and brokers and realtors and all these types of folks uh, come together and either communicate or don't can produce the outcomes that we see in society. Uh, the reality is, is that uh, we all have an opportunity today to do what uh, time has not afforded many people, which is uh, to have the space, the privilege, the resources and the conviction uh, to change the opportunities for the better for people who are not voiceless. Uh, I want to quote Arundhati Roy when she says quite often that there's no such thing as people who are voiceless. There are people who are intentionally suppressed or preferably unheard. And that is the reality of our time is we want to give space and place for voice We want to use the City Club as a platform today to ensure that people who represent the intentions, the lives and the needs of people all across this great city of Chicago are able to find their space and find their voice with an accurate representation of who they are and what they need. I hope that you all listen to this conversation today with uh, with an amount of civic generosity, uh, with a level of emotional preparedness and psychological readiness, uh, because the work of equity is fundamentally uh, about repair. 
So we're not just going to be talking about making investments. And I know we're here to talk about philanthropy. Uh, we're not just here to talk about philanthropy. We're here also to talk about why philanthropy is necessary. As the great Martin Luther King said, it is commendable for the philanthropists uh, to give, but it cannot excuse them from thinking about the root cause issues that create the need for philanthropy. And so we'll be talking a bit about root causes. As a person who's spent the last uh, 10 or 15 years in the social impact sector, um, I have a lot to say about this issue. Uh, but fortunately, y'all don't have to hear from me. We're going to hear from three wonderful <laughs> leaders in their own right uh, to, to unpack these types of issues. But I just want to say that when you walk away from this conversation, I want to just prepare you a little bit for what I hope you take away from this conversation, though I hope that you have a heart of curiosity coming into this conversation about how do we eat? How do we get more? How do we create stability? How do we have better design mechanics for the ways in which we envision and implement the work of justice and equity? But I also hope that when you leave here, you don't think about what is the philanthropist to do. I hope you think about what is yours to do. There's not one person in here who has a lack of agency sufficient such that they cannot make a change in this great city. Every single person here has the opportunity, as do I. And so I invite you in. I don't declare that you have to come in, but I do invite you into the work, an urgent pace and path for the work of equity and justice, not just in Chicago, but because we are in many ways uh, an example for the rest of the country. What can happen here can happen anywhere. And so if we love each other more deeply, more accurately, love will permeate throughout the country. If we insist on not doing so, if we insist on the river norths of Chicago existing and the North Lawndale and Garfield parks where my family came from and lived since 1923, then we'll continue to have the state of the city that we see. So with that said, thank you. Uh, y'all gonna see a little bit of culture up here too. I just want to be very, very clear about that. Y'all gonna see some culture up here. Um, my vibe, I always tell people when we're talking with justice informed clients or if I'm talking to my friends, uh, the vibe is going to be a professional cookout. Um, oh, I'm serious about that. I'm serious about that. I'm serious about that. And only a couple of y'all gonna make the greens. And some of y'all can't make the potato salad. I'm not gonna name no names. <laughs> but with that said, I would love to welcome up and you'll hear from them to introduce themselves. Um, Dion Dawson, please come on up, brother. Good to see you. Come on. You good? All right, we're going to keep it moving. <laughs> um, Jamile Cannon. And Ashley Munson. All right, so folks, I'm going to grab a seat with you all as soon as uh, Ashley's up here. Take your time, sister. It's all good. We will certainly wait. Black women put in a lot of work. Absolutely. Um, Thank you. I'm going to ask you all to take two minutes to introduce yourselves. Tell us a bit about who you are, what brought you to the work, and what do people need to know about the work your institution is doing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Hello, everyone. I'm going to try to act like I'm not the talkative guy that I am. Um, (laughs) uh, Dion Dawson, I am the founder and chief dreamer of Dion Chicago Dream. Um, I want to 
acknowledge that I say chief dreamer because when we're talking about uh, historically black led orgs, we don't get to have uh, the cool names. So I wanted to make sure that there's like at Meta or or um, Twitter, you know, they have like chief blockhead and all of that. I'm like, OK, I have to get something cool. Um, but what we do uh, at Dion Chicago Dream is we fight food insecurity uh, through last mile delivery and logistics. And what we mean by that is we ultimately wanted to shorten the time frame between fresh produce being somewhere and ultimately being in the home of those people who need it. Uh, and so what we've been able to do in three years, we've been able to provide half a million pounds of fresh produce uh, to more than 20,000 families. We've been able to create uh, 21 jobs paying at least $20 an hour. We've been able to raise millions of dollars, uh, be debt free, uh, and also try, try to reimagine. Oh, yeah, we could snap on that. <laughs> we got some fundraisers in this room. So we listen, y'all know the, the fundraisers. Right. Know. Um, but more importantly, bring the, the innovation and advancement that we see outside of philanthropy and outside of food distribution into philanthropy and, and really get closer to where we want to be in terms of meeting critical needs and making sure that we can, you know, when we lay our heads down at night, that we're actually meeting that mission that we've committed ourselves to. And I thank everybody for being here. Thank you. Jamal. I'm Jamal Cannon. I'm founder and executive director of The Block. And I started with the question of what should we do with kids who fight? And our response as a city so far has been to put them in jail, keep them away from other kids and exclude them from the resources and opportunities that I think all young people deserve. And it hasn't worked. So I started a boxing club as a teacher uh, that started off with 12 kids and grew to 120 until we got shut down uh, for being too big for kids walking to our organization. Uh, we not only provide the sport of boxing, but we assess every young person on three levels. It's academic, social, emotional, and physical. And they work with youth development professionals to reach holistic goals within the organization. Now, through that, we learned that there were needs in the community that should be met so that they could reach their full potential. So from food security to health clinics, uh, we started partnering with our community to, uh, to do more to support the space that we expect our kids to grow. So at the block, uh, you'll find the hardest boxing training in young people's lives, along with academic support, uh, community resources, events like haunted houses and pet food, uh, pet food deliveries with one tail at a time through our partnerships. Uh, and we're working hard to meet kids where they are, to help them get to, to where they want to be. And it's working. So every kid in our program has graduated high school and been accepted into college since 2016. With an average GPA of 3.3. Okay. So listening to our community, finding the needs that needs to be met, and working with uh, others to help meet those needs so that we can help create a better Chicago. So I said, hey, everyone. Um, my name is Ashley Munson. Um, by day, I am manager of community engagement and government affairs at the Obama Foundation. Um, basically, what that means is working across the city, southwest, north, to build relationships, sustainable relationships, but also prepare folks for the center that is coming in October 2025. I've been there since the top of this year. So that's by day. At night, I do a little a lot of things, actually. And so one of those, um, I can start by saying when George Floyd was murdered in 2020, um, I put on one of the largest marches in the city. The biggest difference of the march that we led to Daly Plaza and only it had over 4000 people come through 
was that we had an agenda. We had five agenda items. Most of those agenda items got put into the Black Caucus pillars when they passed them. But our biggest effort was making Juneteenth a local state and national holiday. So that is what we did. Um, We were a small part of that, but we definitely did our part uh, for the years forthcoming and building that uh, capacity. I would say the other thing that I would mention, I have a show called Today with Munson. The goal is to civically engage the culture. I've coined the term uh, from the from the li- liaison from the streets to the state house. So my goal is to break down everyday matters for uh, folks to understand political things. And uh, my previous shows have include included Congressman Delia Ramirez, Alderman Lamont Robinson, Jeanette Taylor, um, and a few comedy acts. But the goal of that show is to really break down government because it w- wasn't made for people that look like me. So our goal is to help people become better advocates in their community to everything that X said to make our communities better and filled with more resources. So um, I want to frame up this conversation a little bit. Um, We all know that uh, charitable giving is an important part of financial stability for nonprofit organizations um, and any type of real social work. Uh, today, we really want to focus on the question of charitable giving that uh, is it from the foundation side, the corporate side, and the individual side. Those are the four, uh, the sort of the three largest areas of giving. Of course, bequests. So when, when a person dies and they leave a, a, a trust um, in honor of their name or uh, in service of an organization, sometimes that is also part of it. But I just want to say that what we're talking about today is the question of how those big three foundations uh, corporations and individuals. And, and just to give a little bit of data, uh, individuals account for nearly 67% of all giving. Um, they are the largest segment of givers. I know that many people think that foundations are probably, or corporations are the largest, but it's about 67% uh, that are just coming from individuals. When you think about the foundations, they account for roughly about 17% of all national giving. Uh, and when we're talking about corporations, they account for about 4% of all giving. These numbers are accurate as of 2021. Last year in Giving USA, if you all Google Giving USA, they produce an annual report that really crystallizes the question of how has giving, how is charitable giving uh, uh, increased or decreased and how was it diversified uh, in the last year? Uh, their report just came out two days ago. Uh, you all can find that online. Uh, but one of the things that was really challenging about their report uh, is that they identified that for only the fourth time in four decades, uh, charitable giving went down in 2022. It went down by 3.4%, which adjusted for inflation is roughly 10.5%. Um, that is a massive shock to the system for any organization. If you can imagine a company losing 10% of its revenues uh, or its funding streams in a year, um, that is a massive shock to the system. So these are three leaders who uh, are, are working to ensure uh, that despite these odds, the work still gets done. But we really want to unpack the question of um, what do you feel is the issue? Um, where does your organization come into it? Um, mm-hmm. and, and what does it mean for us to eat? <laughs> what does it mean for us to eat? So the first question, I gave a couple data points, but I want you all in your line of work, in your area and thinking about your ultimate client, your viewpoint. Uh, what is the data point that you want people to really think about that crystallizes the urgency of your work? <laughs> Ashley, can we start with you? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> is you, ex- on behalf of the Obama Foundation, oh. <laughs> what would President and Barack Obama say? <laughs> to be clear, <laughs> I'm speaking on behalf of Ashley. <laughs> um, so the Chicago Urban League dropped a, a report at the top of this month the state of black Chicago 2023. I encourage everyone in this room to read it. It is very interesting. 
But according to the report, about 85,000 black residents have left the city between the, I think it was over the span of 12 years. Now, that sounds like numbers for all of us, but let me put that in a little bit of context. Inglewood had about 100,000 residents in about 2021 or prior to 2021. But at 2021, they have 22,000 residents. And we know what happens when people leave a city. Not only does that city, that town suffer, but the surrounding areas suffer, meaning that Chicago is only as best as the neighborhoods they invest in. I digress. Second point, um, I am from the 34th Ward, the prior one, the one that had Pullman, Roseland, and I'm from Morgan Park. Um, We are no longer a ward. I'm a part of the 21st Ward, where my alderman is uh, Alderman Ronnie Mosley. My ward is now in the West Loop. And so the reason for that is because we lost the most people due to the in the last sentence of people in the city, meaning resources are gone and all of that. And I say that because I know people leave neighborhoods for different reasons. Right. Better schooling, better jobs, even if they have to leave out the state. But we we don't talk about the issues they are leaving for. In addition, Hmm. not only are the problems they left for not being addressed. But the problems that are left for the residents that are still there, Mm. the report summarizes and basically says that uh, schools and black neighborhoods will continue to underperform. Uh, Local businesses will continue to close and neighborhoods uh, of black residents, they will continue to be pushed out if those inequities aren't addressed. And so I think that gives us a kind of. President for this conversation um, and my client, I'm a little bit different than these rock stars here. Stop it. Uh, they are in the city doing their thing with the nonprofit. I've been lobbying and uh, being an activist for the past eight to 10 years. Our uh, charter school network, um, the Greater Chicago Food Depository, um, Illinois Environmental Council. So that's environmental justice, that's food and security, and that's black and brown education. But I think it's important that we talk about the resources that all of us need, right? If we don't invest in those resources, Chicago can potentially look like another Detroit. Um, if we don't invest in those resources, there won't be resources to feed people or have programming. We need those resources all across the board, no matter what you look like. So I think it's important to start with that, that kind of context to talk about how can we make sure that everyone has the right to eat? And I want to build off of that, Ashley, because you mentioned the need for targeted resources to the communities that we're seeing people leaving from. Uh, Xavier spoke about the, the 10 percent decrease in philanthropic giving. Where do you think that decrease is coming the most from? Yeah, it's going to come from the communities that are being most impacted by by these cycles. Now, there was a, uh, a study by Echo and Green and Bridgespan that found that black led nonprofits get 76 percent fewer unrestricted assets than white-led nonprofits. What that means is that while we can all I, we can all say that best solutions come from the community, we still don't trust the leaders within that community to lead and make decisions for the community. They're being made by funders uh, that are restricting assets to certain programs. So, I, and I think a part of this is so much of what we look for in philanthropy is not a marker of programmatic success or quality, but a marker of your connection to resources. Absolutely. And your connection to resources in this city, in this country, is often tied to your proximity to whiteness. So when I'm being asked to, to have specific usage of words in my grant or I uh, have the right headshot or uh, the, all of the things that come along with like, who else is funding me? Uh, when you're asking who else is funding an, an organization, you're seeing what access to resources does this organization have. And that by by a product of that system that we have is, is more indicative of a connection to resources and a connection to whiteness than programmatic quality. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, I mean, when we talk about eating, uh, for me, I can simplify it and say that it, it allows us or me and my organization to be seen and thus see everything else. And what I mean by that is when we're eating, when we're, when we're um, properly funded, then you have strategy. Then there's no fight or flight. And so for our organization, I have, it's understanding what the landscape looks like. Whenever um, a few of the people in this room who I've shared a conversation with before, a few funders, a few partners, um, we talk about the facts. We talk about, for example, with the Chicago Dream and food distribution in the, in the state, uh, the market cap is $400 million. And of that $400 million, 97% goes to four organizations. So when we talk about eating and we talk about, you know, being seen and, and wanting to see, it's understanding what am I up against as a fund, fundraiser, as a leader, um, and as a member of this sector, and then ultimately putting it in the face of everyone who tells me that I'm too passionate. Mm. Who tells me that I should not be pissed off? Who tells me that I should just be okay with what we've built? But we're fighting something and we're talking about eating in a sense where when you talk about black leaders, when you talk about black uh, founders, we have the least amount of multi-year giving out of all of our contemporaries. And so let's put that in perspective. I have an organization that grew from year one to year two, 12, 1400%, from year two to year three, 364%, and year three going into um, to year four, we're going to grow another 65% all the while being a debt-free organization, all the while employing members of our community, all the while doing everything we could to bring that innovation into the sector, only to then look at data, look at reports that tell us things that we already know. But what I always think about when it's time to talk about eating or, or being adequately funded, as I think about the resources we spend on identifying the problem mm. versus the resources we spend on addressing the problem. Now we can have, a, oh no, we gonna take that clap. We gonna take, <laughs> we gonna take, okay, we gonna take. And so, oh, and so when we're talking about this, understanding that it is not insufficient to spend two million on a report mm. if you spent more than two million addressing what the problem was in the report. Mm. Sure. And so what we want to make sure we're doing when we're talking about eating is at the most basic level is philanthropy, Chicago and the United States as a whole. We have to hold ourselves accountable to what is working and whatever is not working. Figure out how little by little we can start being more efficient and more accountable. Sure. Come on now. Come on. So anybody who doesn't like fast talking, I'm very sorry today. Um, anyone who's not keeping up, my apologies. Uh, we're going to keep this moving at full speed. Um, one thing that I think is important to pull out uh, is the cultural significance of the word eat. Uh, so you all saw this in the title of this program when you all were, were registering for it. Um, the ability to eat, Dion and I were talking about this last week. Um, so much of the work of uh, uh, being a black leader specifically has to do not just with, do you know the mechanics of running an organization? Are you able to do the fundraising, these things? But there's a real joy in expressing culturally who we are as we do it. 
Um, and so for those who aren't aware and aren't uh, accustomed to the term eating, uh, it basically just, you know, for example, um, you know, if you if you just get a hundred thousand dollar grant, you've been working on this thing for, for, for months and months and months. And you tell, you know, I tell Dion says, man, X, I just got this grant. Like, man, you eating tonight. You, you eat. We eat. We eat. It's time to eat. You know, um, you may be in what, for instance, in my sector, we do a lot of work with diversity, equity, inclusion. We we launch organizational assessments. We stand up new strategies. Uh, we coach executive teams from Fortune 500s down to small startups. Um, and we are in right now a racial equity and DEI recession. So I would say. We ain't eating mm. at all. We ain't eating at all. It's hard out here <laughs> for anyone who cares about this type of work. Um, this is what eating means. Um, it doesn't just mean the question of, of provision and resource. It is a, a question of the availability of it, sure. the availability of these resources. And to your point, Dion, you said, you know, of the $400 million market cap, 96% goes to how many organizations? Four, Four organizations. Um, this is part of the challenge. Um, the rest of that is, is left for everyone else to eat from. When we think about investments. I run a for-profit company. The reality is, is that um, only 7% of all global non-institutional funding, venture capital, these sorts of things, goes to people of color, women, LGBTQ folks combined. The rest goes to the ideas of white men. 93% of all global capital. We're not eating. <laughs> We're not eating. We're not eating. We're left to split and fight in some ways about, against, uh, uh, about this pie. And so this requires a certain flexibility and acrobaticness <laughs> in our leadership. <laughs> so I, I'd love for y'all to share some examples of how you all think outside the box. So, so um, what is something you've seen across the sector that's allowed you to do something different and build momentum? Uh, right. Something sort of outside the box. And I'll give one example. Um, so the African-American Alliance of CDFI CEOs, some of you all may not be aware of them. Uh, they're a national organization that's committed to bringing uh, specifically African-American executives together who are running CDFIs, community development financial institutions. Justice Informed was fortunate enough to be the organization that helped to create that institution, um, to launch it, to write its mission paper, to organize their board and these sorts of things. Um, but what came from that when a bunch of black executives got together? was they knew that the funding was challenging. They knew that they didn't have a lot of succession planning. But when they looked at the reality of having all these massive CDFIs that might have billion-dollar balance sheets and assets under management down to some that just had one million, what they realized was how do we uh, help each other to grow? Because the big ones had some special sauce that they had figured out. They'd figured something out, but if there's not an apparatus to keep that communication going, then they'll never share those best practices. And it was actually through new market tax credits. Um, they realized a lot of the larger organizations had grown in bringing in these types of financial products uh, to grow their balance sheets, increase their ability to do capital investments in communities where black and brown people were residing, where their banks had a, re a requirement to lend, these sorts of things. So I know y'all are creative and acrobatic and always partnering. <laughs> Can you all give us an example in your area of work where there's something that's non-traditional that you pursued that work that created traction and momentum for your cause? I, I love to start. Uh, so yeah. uh, when I mentioned our nonprofit's mission, I, I talked about cultivating a love of boxing to provide resources and opportunities for our community. Uh, and Dion mentioned there are reports, $2 million reports that get written up about uh, what it is that a certain community needs. We will never need a $2 million report because I can go down the street and ask Ms. Scott. Right. So when I meet somebody on the street and they tell me, hey, we need X, Y and Z. Hey, we have 
our kids in virtual learning and it's not going well for us. What can you do? Okay, we can start a virtual learning lab. It didn't take us canvassing the entire community. We're in a position where we can listen and respond immediately. And because of that, we can move a lot more quickly because it takes me talking to a neighbor, uh, hearing from our kids, using the relationships that we've built to provide the resources that they're asking for instead of descending on our community with resources that we have. I have to tell the story. So early on when we started, um, a little bit about our, our organization, we don't take donated uh, food at all. And I'll tell you where it stemmed from. It was a, a, a happy accident. Um, we're, we're right at the docks. I'm talking to Jab Produce, who's our supplier. Uh, we, we don't have any money yet. We didn't start our programming. And he's walking me through the, through the, um, the docks. And he says, you know, well, if you want food, you know, you, you can come here on Friday like the other groups that come. And, you know, whatever uh, these companies have left, we give it to them free. And then he used an example that it always sticks with me. I always, you know, t- talk to my partners, my team about it. Uh, he says, you know, a group came last week and got 3,000 pounds of broccoli. But then he muttered under his breath and I caught it. He said, well, this week they don't have anything. And that was the moment where I said, okay, I'm confronted with this fact. Now, traditionally in the sector, you just take what you can get. I decided not to because I realized the very thing that our residents need is consistent access. And so if we're going to enter into this market We can't push the same thing that is being pushed, which is we don't know what to do. We we're not built like that. And so that early line setting allowed us to no matter what, never cross the line of hoping we got something and actually building retail activity to the point where we've never owed them a penny. We're one of their biggest clients. But also now they're attached to our organization in a way where, you know, in our first three years, there everyone has seen us on the on the news on Ellen. You would see a photo of Dion with a white box. Well, that was Jab Produce's box. Hmm. So we gave that company seven million TV print and radio impressions for free on a national scale. That was the trade-off. And so we we built that value by drawing that line. And now that quality is attached to our brand so that when they see branded sprinters, when they see branded box, when they see that logo on our team member's chest, the one thing that n- is never questioned is the quality that is involved. Uh-huh. I don't need to answer after that. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. Just the cookout. Don't be messy. Don't be messy. <laughs> Um, you all seem like some principled leaders. You all seem that you move, you, you, you seem like people who move with conviction. And one of the challenges of, of, of the work of, of fundraising and creating and finding resources, um, is similar to what you said. You gotta take what you can get. Uh-huh. I'd be happy. You're often asked to take what you can get. Yeah. And in that, there's a term, I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with it, it's called mission creep. Uh, scope creep is what we say in the consulting world, but mission creep is where, where you're doing something that you know is not necessarily aligned with what the point of your organization is or even what your values are. But in order to get the resources 
you're going to have to compromise. Um, There's a a masterclass out by a man named Chris Voss. Chris Voss is a a, a hostage negotiator. And he famously said uh, in his book, Never Split the Difference. um, I have to always negotiate, but I can't compromise. Mm. Mm -hmm. I can't get half a body back. (laughs) I need a whole body. And somehow you got to walk away thinking and feeling that you got everything you needed. And so there's a question of mastery in the work of negotiation. But there's also a question of how do you hold the line? To prevent that mission creep, to prevent that scope creep. And so when we think about these principles and we think about the question of who y'all are here on behalf of, because y'all are sent by some folks. You're not just here as individuals. You're here on behalf of the people who sent you to speak on their behalf. And so so what are some of the what are some of the ways uh, and how do you ensure that your values are upheld through the creation of partnerships or through the funding process? How do you ensure that your principles stay alive? And are there examples where you've had to negotiate without compromise? Ashley. Oh, <laughs> Ashley, go ahead. Ashley, go, girl. I didn't even know she wanted to go. That's crazy. Wow, that's crazy. That's crazy. Um, I was thinking on which way to answer that question as an activist lobbyist or somebody a part of a nonprofit. And I'll say if I can b- combine those two, I think, my whole trajectory has been being a part of nonprofits, passing bills. By trade, I'm a lobbyist. You give me a bill, I'm going to pass it. But there's a point where you have to pass a bill that you don't believe in. Or you have to come home to a constituency that this doesn't better people that look like me. So why am I doing it? On the other side of that, when we were uh, raising money for the march, uh, the first year we raised $11,000. Also, we did it in 11 days and had 4,000 people come out. The second year was a little bit more planned, a little bit more stressful because to the point that somebody made earlier, uh, black folks in specific, we got to learn how to collaborate and be better with that. But I digress again. Um, the second year we raised $31,000 and it was because I was, I had a set of non-negotiables. I didn't want your money just so you can get a mic. I wanted your money so we can help Juneteenth become a national state and local holiday. And so like we can create a black agenda, which is on my next to do. So I think in combination, I think I stood true to who I am. If that meant leaving an organization because you wanted me as the token black person instead of actually doing the work and building relationships, because that's what I do uh, in my sleep. And then secondly, it's remaining true to who I am and which is why I'm at the Obama Foundation. I think, you know, it's a lot of stuff that can be said about the construction and everything that's happening. But um it's a lot of stuff we're working on to making to make sure that the community is heard. This isn't a normal presidential center. This is a center that will be made by the community for the community with people having access that they didn't traditionally have at libraries. So I think it's a part of standing my ground and using my faith. Um, I'm a Christian, believe in God. The Lord is kind. Um, using that as a way to solidify who I am and to do the work and connect with folks like y'all. Can I can I just um, jump in? Ashley, uh, we got to gas you up. You said very casually the march. Yeah, very the march. Like, that, like, like, like it was no big deal. Um, um, you've put some some of this city's need for recognition of black people on your shoulders. I would love for you to, to, to share what was the march and what was the work that you were pushing forward? Where you said, hey, we're not compromising. Okay. Um, so George Floyd was murdered. Um, I, this, the beginning of it, I was on Twitter and it was folks talking about like, let's just burn it all down, which (laughs) depending on the day, um, (laughs) may or may not disagree. I'll, I'll stop there. But, um, I was upset because I'm in Morgan Park, uh, closer to Roseland and it's a food desert. The closest grocery store to me was a save a lot. 
I'll go to Mariano's, which is an Evergreen Park. And so the Walgreens, like many Walgreens in the city, shut down. But I knew people that, that had grandmothers that got their medication from Walgreens. So now your grandmother, your auntie, your family has to go all the way to 127th on the bus if they have transportation, transportation or not to find medicine. Long story, a little bit shorter. Um, got in some debates because I like healthy debates. And I took a break from social media for about a few days, came back and said, hey, what if we can find an agenda to march on? Woke up, had like over... 20 text messages like, hey, you should do the march. I didn't say me. Hey, <laughs> I will help because I love to help. And 11 days later, we had a march with five acts. It was a health care act about um, reform in health care. It was a few criminal justice pillars in there, and it was Juneteenth becoming a holiday. So after that, we got some of the health care criminal justice reforms in the bills. And then, uh, of course, two, three years later, we got Juneteenth as a national holiday. But I think for me, the Juneteenth march is just, it was bigger than marching. I think marching is super important, but it's like, what are we marching to and what are we doing next? And so I think the the march itself set me up to now think, okay, we need a black agenda. We need, maybe you agree in charter schools, maybe you agree in public schools, but at the end of the day, black and brown people deserve better education. It doesn't matter how we get there, we just got to get there. And so that set me up for a different mindset and put me on different platforms with uh, leaders throughout the nation because the march got national coverage on CNN and different BET and stuff like that. So I'm grateful for the march because it set me up to be in these rooms and meet great folks like yourself. But I think the most important thing is it taught me why I'm here on this earth and why connecting with people like you guys in this room too. Um, and, and helping people understand what the right to eat means. Let's go. Thank you. Absolutely. Dion, Jamal, anything about uh, negotiating without compromise? I'm not talking out to you, so. <laughs> <laughs> Jamal's up first. I'm going. <laughs> Let's go. It's important not to compromise on our values. And I think a lot of my perspective on this comes from me not being from Chicago originally. And recognizing that I am working on the west side of Chicago, a place that I can't accurately represent. So I'm not going to speak about the west side of Chicago in a way that a kid on the west side of Chicago or a parent on the west side of Chicago wouldn't want me to speak. That's right. I, I hear so often people get into rooms like this and speak about the kids they work with in their community in ways that they would never say to the faces. Yeah. And. I know that people are bending because they think that's what philanthropy wants to hear. And honestly, it's often what philanthropy wants to hear. They want to hear this hopeless narrative. They want to hear about downtrodden people that you've lifted up because you're a savior uh, of the community. And I, I cannot bring myself to do it. And I think when I ensure that I speak that way and I demand that other people around me speak that way, that naturally filters out people that I don't want to work with. Mm-hmm. So because if you come to me and you say, like, I have a program for at risk youth. That's a, a term we use a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody's thinking about it or even disadvantage or anything that negatively describes a young person. We are already putting a cap on, actually, we're already putting the floor on what we think is acceptable for those people, mm-hmm. right? The resources that you think is acceptable for an at-risk young person are completely different from the resources you think are acceptable from right. an aspirational young person, a motivated young person. If I, I can provide the bare minimum people that we consider disadvantaged or at risk and be heralded as a hero. And I need to be held to a higher standard. So when I'm speaking to young people, when young people come to me, they're being motivated, they're being driven, they're being intelligent. They're coming to me because they want something for their lives and I'm going to describe them as such. And when I'm speaking that way, I think I naturally attract the people who see the community as powerful 
and worthy and not in need of fixing, but just in need of the resources that they can provide. So uh, we'll not compromise on that. And I, and I believe that that brings the right people to me. Absolutely. <laughs> I call first. Hey, man. I got to go after the march and him. It is a lot. Okay. Um, <laughs> negotiating without uh, compromise. Um, just building a, a little bit off what Jamal touched on, uh, I am extremely appreciative of everyone in this room. Uh, anyone out there watching, anyone that will see this video or hear about, about this panel, but I do not answer to any of you. And I remind myself of it every day. That's true. I, I answer to the people we serve, the team that got us here. That's right. And my family that allows me to put most of my bandwidth into something that I was never formally trained for. And so when we're talking about negotiating, I, I treat it like a hostage situation every day. <laughs> so when, when, when I get going, um, Sarah from the Black Hogs, uh, Sarah from Amazon, like you guys know, um, because we're talking about negotiation where historically access to our people has been sold to the highest bidder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the problem with that is that we never really know our price. Mm. So when we go back to our team, when we're explaining it, it's almost like a comedy bit where we go back to the team and they say, well, how much did you get? I'm like, I got $10. Like, that's it. And you start thinking like, wait, did I not get enough? And so when we're talking about negotiating without compromise, of course, I can easily, you know, talk about, you know, food and, and, and the freshness of it. But I really want to say that that it always goes back to the team and the culture that we're building. Mm. And I think it's important that we speak on this. Um, I am so much more excited about my team than I am of myself. Mm. And people think because I, I have a comms background and because we, I've done interviews and we've been featured in a lot of places that that's the joy that, that drives me, but it's not. It's, it's actually waking up and having the opportunity to create a C-suite, mm-hmm. to actually build a culture where I'm on a Zoom call and I don't turn down their music in our office because that is their environment where they, that's their safe space. And so, you know, I say that because every day we're always negotiating against how we've been trained mm-hmm. and what we need to do to really push the culture and push the, um, the sector forward. And so this is less of a one major tentpole moment and more of every day finding those different things that can hold us accountable to really being and doing what we really need to do to be okay with ourselves when we lay our head down at night. And I think that's, you know, that's what the negotiation is about is that if you lose too much in a negotiation, you're not going to be okay with yourself. That's right. You're going to lay down and you're going to stare at the ceiling. You're going to be like, darn, I didn't get back what I should have got back. And for me, for the first time in my life, I have the opportunity to be held accountable so that when I walk in the office, people are looking at me to see if I am still of the same ilk that I presented to them when I convinced them <laughs> yeah. to join this crazy mission <laughs> with branded sprinters and a box with a big head on it. So, 
It's a pretty big head. It's a pretty big, it's a pretty big head. head. And everybody's like, oh, that's your head. That's, yeah, it's a big head. That Sprinter van that yeah, they got? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting vehicle. <laughs> Uh, a lot of primary colors. A lot of primary colors. A lot of primary colors. Um, so I've only got two more questions. I want to ask the audience. Um, so I know that a lot of you all, it seems like um, we got a lot of new faces at the City Club today. Um, so one of the things that we always do as a practice is we take questions. Uh, but what we're going to ask is uh, there should be some um, some little note cards at your yep. tables. Um, feel free to grab those note cards. If you have a question, write it down. We're going to try to take one or two questions from the audience. Amanda's going to come around. And pick those up. Jackie's going to help out too. Oh, the chairman <laughs> is going to be helping out. All right. Um, but feel free to write those down. I've got one lightning round question for you all. And then one sort of open question. And we want to take any questions that you all, that, uh, you all have. Um, so the lightning question is uh, to the emerging organizations or initiatives or leaders, right? The ones who aren't yet on the stage here at the City Club. What advice would you give them? Just one thing that you would say, hey, if you really want to knock it out the park with navigating this Chicago-based funding landscape and partnership landscape, here's what you need to think about to do. Email us. <laughs> Email me. Yes, mm. that's, what, that's, that, that's the advice. Um, the advice... Is, is, it's about accountability. And I think that, you know, I'm happy that we're here. I think it's important not only for the city club, but also for us, um, because I feel we deserve it. And then we're going to bring people back. What's the email so, address? Uh, any of our email addresses, mm-hmm. because all of us have been here. Mm-hmm. And so Dion Chicago Dream at Dion, um, at, uh, gmail.com or Jamal's, what's yours? Jay Cannon at theblockchicago.org. Ashley Munson. A Munson at Obama.org. And Xavier. Xavier Justiceinform.com. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so I think that, um, a big piece of advice is understanding, um, it's important that we turn around and share what yeah. we're learning. And so now that we've been on this stage and I was extremely nervous before I got up here, I can turn around and say, OK, hey, Jackie, next time when you're up here, this is what you need to be cognizant of and things like that. And he means that. He, mean, he means yeah. that 100 percent. I have a standing meeting with Dion uh, and we're, we're going over what's happening in our organizations. How can we work together better? We've had a meeting with Jackie. Where Dion's gotten, gotten us all lunch. And I still owe him one. Uh, but uh, he absolutely means that because there's so much knowledge to share uh, within each other. I would also say to know who you are and stand firm in that. Because this is an industry will try to twist you into what they want you to be. And you can lose sight of your mission like that and get all the money in the world. But know who you are so that you can drive the results that you're looking to drive and go home and lay your head down and and feel good about the work that you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say that one idea you can't shake that thing like you, you let it go. Like you thought about it last year and then it's back up or you meet somebody and they bring it up. I feel like you have to pursue that. Yep. Um, the caveat to that is that there are a lot of people that are on the ground that may not have a, um, a brand as big as some of the folks that we know. They're doing the work. They just need the resources. So it's a mixture of not letting that dream go. I know that's, that sounds lofty or ambitious, but it's true. If you can't let it go, that means you were created uh, to do that thing. Second, I would say find the people doing the work. To Dion's point about accountability, like we will be so much further ahead as a city. Let's not even break it down into race. But as a city, if we worked better together on the ground doing the work, Absolutely. I got to go again to go. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you can't do it, who can? I think a lot of times we're sitting back with that idea and we don't recognize that the people who are here doing work, they're not. There's nothing special about any of us. We just decided we're going to do it. And we stayed at it. Uh, we, we failed. And we figured it out. We kept getting better. If you can't do it, who can? So I understand that you are the person to get that idea done. 
For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to actually move to the two questions we got from the audience. One of them is fairly aligned with the, the last question I was going to ask anyway. So I'm going to start with that one. This is from Dave Met, uh, Metz. Um, so uh, the question is, the funds sound like they're available. It sounds like there's, there's, there's dollars available, but not accessible to specifically Black-led organizations. What can foundations and corporations do to ensure equitable access to funds and what requirements need to change or be abolished? I'm taking a clap. I'm taking a clap. Come on, Dave, wherever you at. (laughs) Oh, man, listen, I got to take that one. I got to take that one. And I'm going to give an example, but I had to. Oh, my God. I got, I got a lot of examples on this, too. Okay, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> you see the excitement about this question? Um, <laughs> that's a great question. Oh, that's a good question. question. I'm excited about the answer. <laughs> the funds are there in every part of the sector, and they are not accessible, and I'll give an example of why. An example that angered me and everybody connected with me on LinkedIn knew it um, <laughs> was when Mackenzie Scott... Uh, when yield giving, they opened up the round of the million dollar grants, right? Now, on the surface, it's like, oh man, we have 250, you know, black or brown leaders who are going to get a uh, million dollars for their organization. But then immediately, when you read the requirements, very few black leaders who are not traditionally placed in a historical organization could meet them. So, for example, you had to have hit one million in revenue two of the last three years in a pandemic. Right. Historically, more than 90 percent of founders and executive directors at the million dollar level are not black or brown. That is fact. So off top that that takes out uh, the playing field. Then another one is. In those two years, two or three years, you have to have audited financials. Now, I don't know if everyone in here understands <laughs> an audit is not cheap. No. An audit on average is between twelve and fifteen thousand dollars. Now you're talking about a sector that historically is cash poor. You never hear any nonprofit talk about cash on hand. And that is the problem at our organization. Uh, Robert at RP and Associates is, is our, our, um, our accountant. Um, and if he's not sweating, that means, that means we're in good standing. <laughs> we, we try not to run on projections hmm. because that's where it gets dangerous. Mm-hmm. Imagine everyone's financial projections one month before the pandemic, right? Nobody hit those numbers. And so now you're talking about not hitting those numbers, not hitting those projections, and then turning around, being cash poor, and having to have a $15,000 audit when you're already not paying your staff and you have like $1,000 in the bank. And then somehow managing to get to $1 million one of those years, mm-hmm. have everyone text your phone and say, hey, go to yield giving. Only to see that the same systemic issues or barriers that were there just got pushed at the highest degree possible. And so when we when we talk about, you know, accessibility, everyone in this room, myself included, were guilty of pushing things, not in the legal sense, but in market practice. 
And that is where we have to change our behaviors. When you're talking about funding, when you're talking about the accessibility, what is in black and white? If it's not there, why are we doing it? Yep. But, yeah. but go, because I'm getting, yeah. I'll be I'm at the out. I'm with it. I have, I have uh, two suggestions, but I want to talk about the most inflating moment that I had in uh, philanthropy. Uh, it was, you know, the pandemic wasn't new to us at this point. I had taken the time to write a grant. I'm working 75 hours a week at this point. Uh, we had just gotten a building right before the pandemic hit, and we need to get some funds in. Everybody's tightening up on us. Um, so I take some time to write this grant. Uh, I get the grant rejection letter. And they addressed me as if I was Jamal Cole. They didn't read that grant. It was it it was like sticking a needle in a balloon for me. Just all the air went out of me because for me to take the time to do this and for them to see black leader. First name starts with J must be Jamal Cole. And I called Jamal. He said we didn't apply for that grant. So. To realize that we were immediately cast immediately. Uh, And this is just something that happened within the organization. Uh, It made me question how many of my other grant applications had even been read. You know, how how many times have I been rejected on site just by my name? I got a pretty black name. Right. So it made that that really made me look at philanthropy in a completely different light. Uh, And. It makes me think about all the the points of bias that could come across in the application process, in the funding process. A question that I mentioned earlier, you know, who else funds you? Every grant application I ask, ask me, who else gives you? That is checking my proximity to wealth. That's all that question asks. And if it if it if it has any bearing on your fund on your funding decisions, then you are infusing a moment of bias into your application process just like that. If it doesn't have any bearing on your funding decision, it shouldn't be a question. Right. There there are moments like that along the process. A a second thing. Why has no funder asked me who else they should be funding? (laughs) My God. (laughs) So you look at an application and see like this foundation funds them. So they must be good. You're taking their word on it, but you're not taking my word. That's good. Second point of bias infused into this process. We have to look at every point in our application process, every point in our funding process and see what discretion is this given? Who can be harmed by this discretion? And what do we need to do about it? Because everybody can say that our funding process is wrong and it's biased, but you point out any individual points. Oh, no, that's perfectly fine. They got a perfectly good explanation for every part of this process, but something's going wrong. So what bias can be in this point of discretion who's being harmed by it so so we can fix that. Examine your processes, look at every individual point, and understand that bias is going to come into play. And your name is Black and Beautiful. Period. Period. Ashley, you want to close this out or are you good? No, um, retweet everything they said. <laughs> um, so um, I'll say that this is not just even just in the nonprofit sector. I'm a small business owner. It's the same in ours. Um, you know, the questions that we get asked as a business, like just as informed, you know, we've run on average about a 30 percent profit margin every year. Um, there's not many businesses in that way. When you think about the city of Chicago, less than 6% of African American, specifically African American business owners, just talking LLCs, uh, ever make it to five years with more than three employees, right? And so knowing that, you know, my company's in that 6%, um, we have never, never, ever, ever 
been awarded any small business grant that we've applied for. We have never won any fellowship program I've ever applied for. Never gotten any institutional support whatsoever. This is the reality, right? You can still be putting up numbers like this. You can still be putting up numbers like 30% margins. You can still be putting up numbers like seven black and brown and women LGBTQ folks hired jobs, minimum wage of $50,000 a year at my company, right? Like this is the reality and you still can be seen as not sufficient. And so it begs the question of, then what is sufficiency? <laughs> right? Like what's the, what, what more do you need? Um, these sorts of things. Um, I want to just say that, um, it is so powerful to be here and share space with the three of you. Likewise. Um, I think that you all have blessed the city. I know this is recorded. Um, you all have blessed the people that are watch it afterwards. Um, and, and, and I challenge all of you to consider that first question I gave in the beginning. Now, so what is yours to do? You've heard from us. You've heard from three leaders. Uh, my encouragement to you all first is support them. My second encouragement is email them. <laughs> and the third thing is consider where in our work um, to represent, to lead, to empower and to repair the harms of the past and to protect the people of the present. Um, where will we negotiate? But we will not compromise. Thank you all so much. No, 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 no. When Jackie says no, we stay. Okay, yeah, 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 for real. We stay. Sorry, Jackie. We sorry. We sorry. Right here. Right here. Yes, ma'am. So, I don't know why X said yes, ma'am. I mean, no, I'm not at all. Um, Jamal, where are you from? I'm from Lexington, Kentucky. Lexington, Kentucky. Okay, welcome to Chicago. So, you know how, this is a whole picnic conversation, when the sermon gets real good and you're rocking, and you don't know if you're rocking because it's good or, or you're rocking because you're stepping on your toes. You understand where I'm going, right? Those who don't, we'll explain to you later. It's cultural. <laughs> when Jamal made the comment that someone mistook him for Jamal Cole, I mean, who among us has not had that happen, right? So I instantly looked over at Francie, who I don't know if Francie's been in a sermon where she's been rocking like that or not, but she literally was like fuming. Her lips got tight. She was like, you know, have you ever had that? I told you if you don't, again, that's cultural. Yeah, see, it's cultural. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I get it, right? So there is so much here today. And MB, I know your wheels are already turning. I already know. Um, MB's part of our staff and she does so much, so much of this great work. Um, she and Amanda, I don't know how they do what they do, but they make it happen. So I'll just step out and say, because I'm where I can do that, right? And Dan will be okay with it, right? <laughs> you guys are coming back. I, I appreciate it. We'll figure it out. Um, yeah, I got so many notes that I'm not even going to get to all of them. But I will say this. Um, you know, we've made a few changes around here at the City Club of Chicago. And if you haven't noticed it, you see it now. Um, this is what the future of the conversations look like. And I work for a major institution a major financial institution. And we think we're really doing something, but wow. So in my mind, I think that Tara from MacArthur and Francie and Sarah from Amazon and Joyce folk and Genesis is in the back. 
I'm thinking you guys are going to be running up here to talk to Dion and, and Jamal and Ashley. And um, Amanda and uh, MB, when you post this, could you make sure that you post their email, their contact or their website or something so that people can be able to get directly to them? Okay, so they'll make sure that happens because you guys rattled those off. Um, this is what Chicago should look like. This is what the conversations, as painful as sometimes they are, and sometimes they're tough conversations. We have a lot of fun here at the City Club of Chicago. We joke and we laugh, but these tough conversations are where the real work is getting done. And so this should have been one of our not able to move rooms. If you've not been here before, you don't know there are times when I'm sure we have void, we have gone beyond the, what's it called? The capacity yeah. code. Yeah. I'm, you've been in there, right? Where you're like, hi, can I just get to my seat? Mm-hmm. It's one of the, this should have been one of those, but I promise you that number two will be Danielle. So however we go about doing it, I don't know. I, that's not what I do, Absolutely. but I will say thank you to each one of you. And um, did I shout out Genesis from Greater Chicago Food Depository? So Genesis is like family to me, so she gets a special shout out. Um, Let me just say thank you to each one of you for being here, for taking time for this conversation. This is so important. And these tough facts are what, oops, sorry guys, are what they live with every day. And um, I know X well enough to know that he's not done with this conversation either. So what I'm going to say is, okay, I know, I already know, I already know (laughs) So what I'm going to say is I don't like to say that, you know, we have a monopoly on a whole lot of things around here, but I want this to be city comps conversation. I want this to continue. Um, it deserves to be continued here. And uh, Dan is not here. He's traveling today, our CEO. But what he would say is this is where the conversations need to be held. And that's what we try to do. Peggy knows that. This is what we do. Um, and so if I see all of you still talking 15, 10 minutes after the program, that tells me that we had a great program. And I have a feeling that those funders are going to be talking to you all. Because if you don't talk about it, then we don't know about it. Absolutely. So on behalf of the other board members who are not here, I am supposed to. I'm not going to ask you to get up. I'm just going to pass you your Jamal. All right. Jamal. Jamal. Thank, I appreciate y'all. So you understand how important that is culturally. That is so, um, nice. When you mispronounce a name, that's a whole thing, right? It is. It's. I'm just going to answer the question for you. It's a whole thing, right? Um, that's a big deal. So Jamal, thank you for correcting me. Um, I, I, yeah, that's a whole. Again, you got to come to the picnic to get that. But um, those are your membership, your year membership um, member memberships. Please utilize them. Please come. Um, we're but a phone call away or you can press the button and register. Um, I will tell you that I've noticed that we have had more and more events where people have not been able to get in. Sorry. Come early to secure a good seat. It's kind of like, you know, Jesus and Mary at the, at the end. Get in. Okay. That was cultural too. But, um, so maybe that's just Sunday school related. Um, the, the website that Xavier talked about, givingusa.com, I want to make sure that we share all of that information. You shouldn't have to come and try to remember everything. So um, our marketing folks will make sure all of that gets out. Um, I am going to ask that. Did you always come down? <laughs> you got a mic under there. He said. He said. He said. He said. There's a mic under there. Really? Uh, secret mic. You ain't stopping it. Come on, extra. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. Oh, 
I hear that a little bit later. <laughs> I mean, what would you rather hear my mouth or the fact that just keep me going? I don't know. They cut me. Um, so the um, conversation will continue. Um, please make sure that you, um, the, the, um, the program will be up later today. CW later this afternoon, it'll be live. Yeah. So please go back and rewatch it. We will make sure that we tag everything from a marketing perspective. Please don't make this your last time being here. I'm going to ask you all to stay up here for a quick photo. And then all the people that want to talk to you will come up, I'm sure. Thank you all so much. And although we're late, we are adjourned.